Throughout their life, a believer will be called to walk according to God's design and live differently than the world. We do this through intentionally rooting ourselves in God's Word in order to understand His will. What is God's will for your life? The answer is simple, but difficult. All this and more as we continue our Year of the Disciple. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. Right. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. It's been a minute since we've been here um, over the holidays, and I've been in and out. I appreciate um, Garrett stepping up for me last week and teaching, and um, for Levi and him are, have, been, have been great partners with, with me in the ministry, and so appreciate them. Um, we are going to spend the next couple of weeks, uh, I guess we'll be in Ephesians this week, and then we're going to take a little bit of a detour the next couple of weeks, but then we'll be back. Um, if you remember, uh, as we're working through Ephesians, uh, we are, we're talking about being imitators of God. So Paul is, is um, instructing the church at Ephesus about unity, about putting on the new man, about making sure that we are living worthy of the calling that we've been given uh, so that we can be uh, God's stewards of his mysteries and be his imitators on earth. And the idea is that our lives are meant to be an illustration of godliness. In essence, the way that we live is to, is to be a, a beacon to people, right? So imagine yourself as, uh, as Genesis 2 describes human beings as people who are made in God's image. The idea is that um, we have the responsibility now as his redeemed creatures to um, to communicate his goodness not just directly through our words but also through our lifestyle, and uh, there are there are many people who take this instruction about living righteously in our in, in their generation and they apply a legalistic lens to it, to where if I'm going to be a Christian I can't have fun laughter is prohibited I definitely can't have uh, any kind of friendships all the joy is sucked out of life I can't play games I can't do any of those things, but that's not true. Right there, there is a principle in Scripture that we don't do certain things not because we're better than other people, but because we understand that certain fleshly things, according to our old nature, is good is bad for us, that it's destructive for us, and we need to be uh, we need to be aware of that and cognizant of that. So, we're going to look at verses fifteen through twenty-one of Ephesians chapter five, and uh, this last little section before he gets into the illustration of wives and husbands. But in this, he's going to talk about submission. And um, remember that your walk with Christ needs to be intentional. Intentionality is probably the best description of the Christian life. Is that we don't live uh, we don't live re- responding to situations in a haphazard way. Uh, a, a mature believer, a mature child of God, is going to be. Uh, intentional in how they live, in both the the disciplines that they that they incorporate into their life, and also in the things that they take part in. So let's read these six verses, and then we'll start looking at them. Beginning with verse fifteen, he says, "Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit." speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, 
and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, we're going to begin with paying attention to how we live. Okay, so in verse 15, he says, Look carefully. Therefore, be careful. Uh, another way to say this is, uh, don't be stupid! Exclamation point. Right? In our family, we have a set of rules that are kind of tongue-in-cheek. But rule number two is, don't do dumb stuff. Right? He says, look carefully. What this means is, this comes from a Greek verb, which means to see or to discern. This specific translation... Um, it means to turn thoughts or direct the minds to a thing or to consider, contemplate, or to look to. It implies an intentional living and readiness for action. The idea is he's say, he he saying, be careful. He's not saying watch out for traps. That's part of it. But live on purpose is essentially what he's saying. Be intentional about how you live. Um, Jesus used the same language when he spoke about his second coming and the sovereign timing of the Father. When they said, when, it, when is going to be the, the end times? And Jesus says, only the Father knows. But he says, until that day comes, be intentional with your living, right? It's not like we are in a panic uh, at the end, like for instance, use an illustration, the end of a basketball game, the buzzer's about to go off, and so we're quick trying to get down the court to score, some po- score, score the winning point. We need to be intentional about the game and how our lives are, be- are progressing, right? It's not just about being in a rush. We're not uh, in a time crunch, but what we are is we're, we are called to be intentional about, our, about strategic living. So one of the things is that we need to recognize that we, we live in, with a dual perspective. We live, we're, we're called to live with a perspective to where we are watching heavenly things, anxiously waiting for Jesus to come back. But we also are intentional about our lives, our daily lives, and the, and the daily things that we do. Uh, we can't just uh, live in one or the other at the, at the expense of the other. So he says, look carefully how to walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. This implies a person who sees the world through the sovereign confidence of the Father's perspective. So consider this, right? If you have God's perspective, you are going to have God's priorities. So if you see people, if you see situations, if you see uh, trials, you see victories, accomplishments, what that is is an opportunity. God is, is winnowing your perspective. He is focusing your, the lens of your perspective to where you can see things as He sees them. So how does that affect us? It changes the way that we see people when they hurt us because we see that they are acting in their brokenness and in their sin. We don't, we don't respond with spitefulness, but instead we, we respond with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, right? We are faithful to people. Another thing is that it changes the way that we see our priorities. We get up in the morning not because God's a slave driver and we've got to spend time in His Word, otherwise He's not going to bless us. We get up early in the morning because we are anxious to spend time with someone who deeply loves us. So He says, look carefully, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. A believer recognizes that in their sin, they walked off the path of righteousness and, and, they're, and they're living in an offense to God. So what we do is we, as, as sin has been revealed in our lives, as we are saved, now we realize that we've got to go to work in working out our salvation with fear and trembling and rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, Galatians tells us and James tells us that we naturally are pulled away from godliness because of our flesh. But, but it also gives us the encouragement in those places that we need to be uh, careful to walk with God because He's going to restore and redeem all the things that we go through. Look at verse 16. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So don't make the mistake of interpreting Paul's instruction here as being defensive. He's not saying redeeming the time as in we're losing. What he's saying here, so there's two different words for time in Greek. One is uh, chronos, which means a 
the progression of time. The other one is kairos. Kairos is a season or a portion of time. So think about the seasons of harvest in the agricultural calendar, right? That's what he's talking about here. He's saying redeeming the time, redeeming the season, because the days are evil. In other words, we are living on purpose in this generation. Now, you, you, might, um, you might hear older folks say this, or you might have said this, where you think, I cannot wait for, for Jesus to come back because this just sucks. There have been moments of my life where this just is hard. It's difficult, and I, and I don't want to do it anymore. God, why do you tarry? Why do you wait to come back? And the reason why is because He has chosen us to participate in redeeming this season. The word redeeming comes from a Greek word that means to buy, one, to buy up for oneself or to buy up for the opportunity. It means to make the most of a seasonal opportunity. The idea is that, um, going back to the, the illustration of the agricultural calendar, right? There's a, there's a season for planting. There's a season for tilling. There's a season for harvest. There's a, t- there's a season for watering. What he's saying here is he's saying redeeming the season. Understand the perspective of the season that we're in. Right, we are in. Uh, we are when Jesus came to came to the earth. He he ushered in the kingdom of God. That means that God has walked with us and He's recruited us to be a part of His plan for the world, in showing the world His goodness and His grace and His love and His mercy. Right, so that means that that's what we should we should be about. That's what we our focus should be. As we walk carefully, we're not sitting there trying to not get dirty from the world. What we're doing is we're intentionally taking part in in the community around around us, so that we can challenge them to see the goodness of who God is. Right? So when he says redeeming the time, he's saying capitalize on this moment. Paul's point here is that believers have an intentional sense of urgency. Uh, it doesn't come out of fear, but a sincere desire um, to, to carry out the commandments of their master quickly and expeditiously. Right? The, uh, the idea to make disciples. He says because the days are evil. The word evil comes from the Greek word that means uh, general hardships. He's not talking about the days are demonic. He's saying the words are corrupted. These, this, this, these, uh, these days are corrupted. The primary job of a believer is to work alongside God in rescuing the lost from their sin. So, I want you to notice something here. That the Bible doesn't make the claim that the powers of evil are equal with God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Satan and Jesus are equals. They are not. So at the very best, what this looks like, the way that Scripture describes our current situation, is that Evil is not at war with good, and they are on equal sides of the battle. The battle was over as soon as Jesus died and was resurrected. When he ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. He declared victory. It's one of the things that we've talked about here is that he led, he led captive the captives. He has taken over the, uh, the, the, the whole conflict. And so what is happening in our generation right now in redeeming the time is that Christ has won. Generally, once a conflict is over, you sign peace treaties, right? So the way that Scripture defines our generation and, the, and the, everything that's happened since Jesus was ascended into heaven is that essentially the war is over, but there are still skirmishes that are happening. And in essence, what that means is that Satan is left to, do, to conduct only guerrilla warfare against God's people. He has no authority over God's people. He has no ability to possess God's people because the Holy Spirit is, is, is in, our, in our lives and present in our, in our, with our spirits. And so the best that he can do is disrupt and to intimidate and to do his best to throw off our focus. So when he says the days are evil, he is, he is portraying this idea that we are, uh, we are 
under attack, not from an overwhelming force, but from someone who's going to try to frustrate us. How do you deal with guerrilla warfare? You deal with it with discipline, with understanding, with, uh, with, with, a, with a, an attitude that it understands the context of the truth. But what we do is we see guerrilla warfare around us, sometimes because of our own, uh, our own lack of intention, and also because of actual hardship, actual um, oppression. And we, we fall into the trap of thinking that, that somehow that we're in the vulnerable position, but we're not. We are not on the losing side of this. And, and a mature believer doesn't just pine away for the days in heaven where finally there's going to be no, uh, the no, there's going to be no more tears, there's going to be no more hardship. We need to live in the reality that today we are, we have been given a new life in Christ. And that the most the devil can do is he can intimidate us and he can try to throw us off of our game. That's why he's saying we need to redeem the time. So he transitions in verse 17 to talk about know what God's will is. Understand God's will. Look at this, verse 17. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. One of the, the common questions that I get all the time from young adults is trying to figure out God's will. Well, he says the first step is to not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, what the Lord's will is. The, to be foolish comes from a Greek word that means to be without intelligence or to act rashly. Have you ever met those people that they can't get out of their own way? They are so out of control that they cannot think straight. They can't, they can't come to a logical conclusion. He's saying, if you live intentionally, if you look carefully in how you walk in wisdom, not as an unwise person, you won't be foolish. And you will understand what God's will is. The command to understand God's will is in the imperative mood. What, what that means is it's an emphatic command. It literally means, do not be an idiot. Don't be dumb. If you take anything from this lesson, let that be it. Don't be dumb. Now the challenge is that we make mistakes because of our own lack of intentionality, and we get ourselves into binds. And who do we blame? God! Why, don't, why didn't you save me from this? God, why, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you allowing me to go through this financial hardship? Now, granted, I haven't taken care of my money ever, and I spend more money than I make. Yeah, sure, but if you'll just get me out of this bind, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be fully committed to you. God, why are my relationships falling apart? Now, granted, I treat people like garbage, but why are my relationships falling apart? Right? He says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be an idiot. He says, life is serious business, and those who approach it casually are going to walk at their own peril. We have to understand that our redemption is not just for our comfort or our relationship with God. It is about putting, the, putting on display His goodness and His graciousness and the confidence that comes from walking with Him. Paul's using language here that implies that God has reversed the consequences of sin for His people, and He's given them a finite amount of time to spread that life-changing message. So, how do we figure out what the will of the Lord is? I'm glad you asked. Turn, over to, 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 turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. A lot of times we claim that God is mysterious, that He's hiding, that somehow he is, He's difficult to understand. But when we say that, we say that in our own ignorance. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is giving instruction to the people of Israel. 
And way back in the Old Testament, way back at the beginning, he gives this instruction. He says this in verse 3 and verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall, they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The point of this is that God's will is found in His Word. How do you know what God's will is when you obey His Word? Right? So, so a lot of times what happens is we approach God's Word like a recipe book or like an instruction manual, right? And it is. There, there are certain recipes and certain instructions for how to fix problems in our lives. This is where we're supposed to go. But also remember that as we're studying God's Word, we're beginning to learn about His character. So I've used this example before. When you were a kid, probably when you were a teenager, you knew which parent to go ask about something because you knew what their answer was going to be. Guaranteed, if I asked Dad if I could go spend the night at my best friend's house, he would say yes. Nine times out of ten. That one other time was because Mom got to him first. Right? We, I knew that because I knew my dad. I had spent time with my dad. In the same way, how do we know what God's will is? By knowing and being a, being a student of His Word. By dedicating ourselves to being with Him and, and applying the things that we read. So how do we know what God's will is? We submit ourselves to what His Word instructs us to do. Deuteronomy 6 teaches us that the primary way that God teaches His will is through His Word. But people complain about God not speaking to them because they deny that, that He has said anything at all. Paul's command to not be foolish is rooted in this, in rebellion against God's Word. If you want to build your family on foolishness, choose to not build it on God's Word. Make exceptions for God's Word. Say, yeah, I understand that way back in the day, or that, oh, here's a good one, Christian tradition says I shouldn't do these things. There's a reason why traditions have, have established themselves within our community because they're built on biblical truth most of the time. We test those traditions against Scripture to make sure that they are correct. <laughs> However, if we have a blatantly rebellious attitude against the principles of Scripture, we're going to build our houses on sand. We're going to build our homes, our families on sand. And when the wind comes and when the storm rises, our families will collapse. We've got to remember this, that to know God's will is to know God's Word. If a, per if a person wants to know what God's will is for their life, it is to know and to obey His Word. So in other words, to sum up these last two points, don't be dumb, do what God says. Okay, these last three verses have a lot of truth for us. Let's dig into that. Beginning in verse 18. Now, hear me. The purpose of these next verses is not to tell you about whether or not you should drink alcohol. That's not the point. Don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? Beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in, with your heart uh, to, the, to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, he begins a second comparison here. He says, okay, don't be unwise. First thing, don't be unwise. Obey God's Word. Okay, the second comparison is, don't be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, he's, he's talking about wasting opportunity, the wasting the opportunity of, of living a transformed life. 
So these words here in verse 18, he says, uh, he compares, uh, let's start with being drunk with wine. This shows dissipation. The Greek adjective here implies a lifestyle that's the same as the prodigal son. You guys remember the, the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? He goes away and he wastes his life on prodigal living. This is a word that means uh, wasteful living. In other words, he had, think about the implication of a, an inheritance, right? So many of you, you know that the story of the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, his father gives him, he says, I want my inheritance early. There's a couple things about that. We don't have time to spend a whole lot in, in, in that lesson. But one is that he loses the potential of the growth that his father would, would give to his future endowment. His father has been proven to be a faithful steward, and so if he takes his inheritance now, he's going to miss out on all the, re- the residual returns that, that would happen after. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing is he takes that opportunity. Think about a, uh, an inheritance. This is, this is uh, potentially a stockpile of resources that will um, exponentially increase your potential, right? You inherit a large sum of money, that means that that changes your perspective, that changes your, your needs, right? You inherit $3 million from your parents, all of a sudden you don't necessarily have to work as much as you were, right? It changes your station. So what does our guy do? He takes that money and he goes and he drinks it away. He literally flushes it down a toilet through reckless living, non-intentional living. He's saying the same thing here. He's saying this is the same word that's, that's, that's used in Ephesians chapter 5. The Latin form of this word was originally used to describe the overwhelming defeat of an army. In other words, it implies the stripping of all power and influence. Just like today, when Paul wrote these words, it's, it was common for people to live in excess. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, reckless living, hedonism, pursuing pleasure, all of these things were part of life back then and they're part of life now. What he's saying is, he's saying, do not live this way because you're literally throwing away this opportunity. God's given you an opportunity to be able to take part in what he is doing in the world and you're, and you're flushing it down the toilet. This wastes influence, the influence that God's given us to the point, uh, and it's the point that, that he's given for us to live out in the world. So Paul's calling the church to focus on seriousness. Um, and then he says this. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. One of the things that is, uh, there's some indications about a life that is filled with the Spirit, and he goes through some of those here. The first is that he says, uh, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, if you have ever um, wondered, why do we have instrumental music in church? Why do we sing in church? It's because there's a commandment right here. Not just in Ephesians chapter 5, but also within the greater context of Scripture. He talks about uh, speaking to one another. Now think about this. We typically think of worship as us talking to God, right? If I get, when I go to big church and I'm sitting there and I'm singing, I'm singing to God. But what is this text telling us? He says, speaking to one another. Whoa, wait a second. Speaking to one another. What happens whenever you see someone worshiping God in an authentic way? Do you watch them like it's a show? Or does that encourage your spirit to worship harder? Does their authentic worship point you to heaven? What he's saying here is that whenever we sing, whenever we are filled with the Spirit, our overwhelming praise, it, um, it encourages other people. It implies that the root purpose of worship is a testimony of who God is and what He's done in our lives. And we often don't, we don't acknowledge 
that a refusal to sing in church is a refusal to encourage someone else. Now, now granted, God has gifted some people with the ability to not be able to sing. But that doesn't exclude them from this mandate. I have found that the people that worship the best are the people that don't have the talent to sing. Because they don't have the distraction of trying to sound good. They can authentically worship their master. And what happens is that it encourages other people. He says, we speak to one another in these kinds of things. There are three kinds of, of worship that are detailed here. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let's talk about those. The first, a psalm, is Scripture set to music. It reminds us of what God's Word says. Remember, we are focusing on living our lives around God's Word. His will is found in His Word. So a psalm is a song that has been, a, a, a Scripture that has been set to music. Something that describes a biblical truth. It's also a useful tool to memorize Scripture. One of the things that I love about our preschool ministry is that um, they go out of their way to teach our children Scripture. And wouldn't you know it, they use music. You probably have heard of this tool when you were in school, that if you sing certain things, you'll remember them, right? So another thing is that many of the prayers and scriptures that, are, that the early church used and committed to memory were from Jewish songs that came from the Torah schools. Think about the little songs that you learned when you were in Bible school when you were a child. Songs like, Jesus loves me, or Jesus loves the little children. These are fundamental truths about who God is that are singing Scripture. The second type is a hymn. A hymn is, a type of, is not a type of worship, but it's a style of music. Okay? A hymn is theology set to music. A hymn is what teaches us about God's character. Remember, your theology is the most basic thing about you because how you see God is how you see the world. So when we sing a hymn like How Great Thou Art or God of Armies, we are singing about God's character. We're singing theology. We're teaching ourselves how to process and how to think about what Scripture says about God. The, there, there is a, these are an important part of the church because it's the primary way, music is the primary way that people learn theology. Now here's what's going to happen. Okay, mark my words. You may not even remember this. That's probably the point. We've spent the last 20 minutes talking about God's Word. And what's going to happen this afternoon? You're not going to be thinking about my lesson. You're not going to be thinking about what Pastor Michael talked about this morning. But you might be humming a song we sang in worship. On Thursday morning when you're getting ready for, for work, and you're in the shower, and you're singing to yourself, chances are you're going to be singing a song about God. Music is the primary way that we teach people theology, which is why we teach children songs which is why children's choir was such a big part of many of our lives growing up. Music is a huge piece of how we teach people about God. Now, the last type of music is a spiritual song. These are testimonies set to music. So think about uh, testimony songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's an example of a spiritual song. These are important because they talk about what God has done in the lives of his people. These songs remind us of God's faithfulness and love and, they, and gives us encouragement to face the struggles of our life. When you used to be back when, when we were younger, there was what was called the worship wars. 
So you had, oh, I'm a hymn person, or I'm a chorus person, or we should have a full orchestra, or we should have a drum set on stage, right? That was the big debate whenever I was a kid. But the reality is that, remember, we got to focus ourselves on what Scripture says, and Scripture tells us that we need to have all three types of music. And as long as we are doing this, we are training people to see God and to frame our lens around what His priorities are. Now the last portion he says here is that, that we should be singing and making melody with our hearts. This is an expression of worship to the Lord. Notice that we are encouraging one another in our worship, but we're, we're still singing to the Lord. He's the object of our worship. We don't sing because people are watching us. We sing because He's worthy of our worship. And worship is contagious. His children should authentically want to express themselves. Because in doing that, we're reminded of who we are in Christ. One of the profound impacts of being filled with the Spirit is that He draws all of His children to naturally worship. One of the things that I love about ManVenture, for instance, if you've ever been in a room full of 300 dudes singing, granted it's a lot lower than it is on Sunday morning, but it is one of the most powerful things you'll ever hear, to hear men singing. Same thing is true for women. Whenever we're drawn together to worship, we gather strength from that. There's a reason why after worship is over, when Michael takes the stage to preach, when all of us sit down, there's this, oh man, now okay, yeah, now I'm ready. I'm ready to listen. It's because worship tunes our ear to hear the Word of God. There's a reason why we do church the way that we do. If the first manifestation is a testimony to worship, the second one is to be filled with the Holy Spirit in thankfulness. One of the things that Paul talks about in uh, his book of Philippians is the process of dealing with anxiety. People don't realize that there is actually a scriptural recipe for dealing with anxiety. And we tend to think about thankfulness as just a, um, a throwaway thing. I should be thankful to God for saving me, right? But consider this. The Philippians 4 tells us that the way to combat anxiety is literally to thank God. We thank God before we make requests. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's a revolutionary thought. I know that every person in this room is dealing with some sort of a challenge. Have you made it a regular practice of your life to thank God for the challenge in your life before you ask Him to save you from it. Because here's what I've found in my short 38 years of existence. Is that many times God will not relieve me of a, of a trouble until I have learned to be grateful to Him for it. And so the longer that I fight being grateful, the longer it takes for Him to relieve that pressure on my life. James tells us that the reason why we have trials is so that we can become perfect. We have difficulty because God wants to chip away all the worldliness away from us. He's wanting to, to hone in our focus on to see the world the way that He is. And so to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we are filled with, with uh, gratitude for who He is, for what He's done for our lives. And it's not just about, God, thank you for saving me. That transitions from, God, thank you for saving me, to, God, thank you that you're with me in this moment. That's the real reward. Not having difficulty is not the reward of heaven. Being at one with God is. Being at one with Christ is. To have a relationship with Him, an abiding relationship, to where we can, we can draw strength from Him moment by moment. That is the real reward. So thankfulness. 
is the, is the second manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. The third manifestation is uh, to be submitted to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, this can be sticky. Submitting to one another. Well, okay. What about church hurt? What about people? I'm going to submit myself to a human being, and they're going to be clumsy, and they're going to hurt me. Okay. That is a, that's a real thing. But does that change the biblical mandate? No. Consider this. Submitting yourself to other believers, submitting yourself to a community, is that no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how intelligent you think you are, you cannot see every liability in your life. You can't. You have blind spots. We all have blind spots. And so we have to submit ourselves to other people that we know and that we love, that we know are chasing Jesus, and we trust their feedback, and we, we, we take their confrontation, and we look at God's Word and say, you know what, actually, yeah, I need to change this about my life. And if people don't approach me, I, I've, I've missed out on a key piece of what God intended for my life. Imagine within your relationship with each other, imagine if you never talked about conflict. Imagine if you never talked about the things that you disagreed with as a couple. You were, just, you were living your lives independently. It, it, it wouldn't work, right? We don't, we don't get married and say, okay, cool, thanks. Now I'm married and we just go and we live our life on our own. The reason why we, we're paired together is because we're stronger together than we are apart. That's what God's, God's mandated is here, to be submitted to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, fear doesn't mean that we are afraid of Jesus. Fear means that we respect and we understand His place and how He has orchestrated things in our life. Out of respect for Him, we do these things, right? We got along with our siblings out of respect for our parents most of the time, right? Now, did they have the ability to be able to come in and offer some corporal punishment? Absolutely. However, we did it to please them. The last thing here in these last two verses, then we're going to wrap up. He says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. An intentional lifestyle and a worshipful attitude will create thankf uh, a thankful and submissive heart. Now, verse 21 is important because it's going to give us a clue to what's coming next, about being subject to one another. Whenever we come back, we're going to look at verses 22 to 33, and this is the famous passage about marriage. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, we need to be jointly submitted to Christ and to one another, and he's going to highlight the relationship between a husband and a wife and how they are jointly called to submit to each other. There are some people who wrongly read this as, oh, well, the, husband, the wife just needs to do everything the husband says. But we're going to talk about what that actually means. So as, we are, as we're working through this passage, it's important for us to understand that God has called us to submit. Submit to one another, submit to His Word, and submit to our community. So here's your question for the car. How are you intentionally submitting to godly wisdom? How are you intentionally submitting to godly wisdom? Do you have a practice in your home? Is there a, is there a response that you have within your family culture? Like, for instance, if you have a challenge that, or a frustration, are you quick with an answer to say, what does God's Word say about that? When one of you is getting overwhelmed and anxious, do you remind each other to go to God's Word? Establish these things in, your, in the culture of your home. An immediate response. You guys get short with each other, chances are one of you hasn't spent time in the Word. And it's going to be irritating to ask the question, but you need to ask it. Have you spent time in the Word today? Because you're a little bit like a pill. I really don't like you right now. How are you intentionally submitting to godly wisdom? And also, have you cultivated in your family 
a love for God's Word. Remember that God's Word is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is, it is a file folder full of His attributes. And if we know it, if we know it well, that means that we're going to be well in tune with His, with His will. So to know His Word is to know His will. And if we try to avoid that, what happens is we do so at our own peril. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried.